Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Thank you very much for joining us today, right in the middle of awards season. Uh, I quite like this time of year, I must say, because I'm reminded of all the sporting events that I've forgotten in the last 12 months. Mm. I, I had forgotten that Andy Murray won Wimbledon, for example. So had I. Yeah, I was thinking, no, no, he won the Olympics. Oh, no, that was, no, yeah, Wimbledon this year. I just said that to Simon a couple of minutes ago. Really? He said, nah, that wasn't this year, was it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it just turns out maybe we didn't pay as much attention to Wimbledon as... It Brad's was a weird. pretty bad Wimbledon, in fairness. No, I pay a lot of attention to the things when they're on. I just forget them immediately. I, I've already forgotten my previous sentence. Yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about? Was it a bad Wimbledon? It was, yeah. I mean, a straight set final victory for Andy Murray against Djokovic with... I mean, it, it kind of became clear after about a week or, you know, five days a week that Andy Murray actually had a serious chance of winning it because mm. most of the other players apart from Djokovic had been knocked out, had they not? Mm. Was that not the case? I'm asking the wrong man. I I know. Uh, <laughs> You're asking the goldfish here, Ken. Yeah, I, I have no idea what happened in. Sport. Well, Nadal was knocked out in the first round. Uh, and Federer was on the way out, so yeah, yeah. No, you're 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 about right. The rest of the award ceremonies between now and the end of December are going to do pretty well to come up with as grandiose a presentation as Alex Ferguson's. What was it? A Diamond Award at the BBC Sports Personality of the Year on yeah. Sunday night, or sorry again, Sir Alexander Chapman Ferguson, as Gary Lineker introduced him in a gravely serious tone. You know when Gary Lineker resists the temptation to throw in a little. Jokey so, introduction that it's a serious, serious topic we're talking about. Well, hey, could it have been any more serious than Ferguson? Um, honestly, one of the most ridiculous things, one of the most nauseating spectacles ever committed to television. Uh, Alex Ferguson's, I mean, come on. You know? Yeah, I can't. Come on! Say it was... You know, what, well, what did this guy do that was so amazing? You know, well, Mozart was buried in a pauper's grave. Yeah, well... And here we are looking at Alex Ferguson nearly a year after he retired, and we're still looking at him. Yeah. David Moyes dragged out again to have to... David Moyes kind of stepped out of the uh, the line of people shaking Ferguson's hands. He kind of kind of stepped forward. I don't know whether that was just to underline his seniority, just that he was even more nervous than the other people standing up there. But come on, you know, I just... I'm sick. 
I'm sick of listening and listening about it. It was the crooner, gotcha. It was a live crooner singing The Impossible Dream. Dream, The Impossible Dream. Really? Got to you, wasn't it? Well, there was a lot of things about it that got to me. I mean, it's the, the whole sports person. I actually missed it live at the time because I turned off the show because I thought, this is the most boring show I've ever seen. I cannot believe that they've got all this money, all, all these people, all this footage, all this potential, and they've turned it into one of the dullest television programs I've ever seen. I can't watch it. I cannot sit here and watch another narrative about an inspirational sports person. I cannot watch another... You know, it's it's always so dull. You know, it's always oh my, you know, my family really helped me to become a successful sports person. You know, brilliant. You know, that's fantastic. I mean, can we can we see another one of those stories? There should be an, there should be another one along. You know, oh, yeah. you know, I've suffered I've suffered uh, sadness in my life, and at the moment of my triumph, I remembered that sadness, and you know, and that somehow made me feel even better. You know, here are some volunteers. Let's be inspired by them. That was an actual phrase. Let's be inspired by the volunteers. <laughs> I actually was watching the history of the Sports Personality of the Year Award on Thursday night oh, that last better. week or Friday night. Oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, It was really, really bad. But, uh, but Seb, I used to Seb love it, I, must say. I, used to, I used to like it. It's like yeah. if you watch sport, you have to be apparently in this sort of very um, emotional, this hyper-sentimental emotional condition. Yeah. So, as Seb Cole right, said on this uh, History of the Sports Personality show, uh, they were talking about the, the Volunteer of the Year Awards. You know, and he goes, that for me is the big one every year. The <laughs> you know, Sports Personality of the Year. The Sports Personality, like, it's, it's not even like the Oscars where they're all Oscars and, you know, the best picture Oscar is the big Oscar. Mm. The show is actually called Sports Personality of the Year mm. 20, whatever year it is. That is the name, the show revolves around one award which they've stuck in the title of the show so to then say that another much lesser award handed out to someone that no one's ever heard of before is the for me the big one of the night Murph slams sporting volunteers yet again one of those great bugbears people giving their time and their energy for free you're just t- like it's these volunteers. They're getting taken for a ride here. These volunteers. Well, I mean, don't, don't, I think it's great. don't like, insult. Don't, don't insult the volunteers. No, Was I sitting there with th- tears in my eyes? That's I don't know if it's insulting, but it might be somewhat patronising. It's the most patron. It is no. actually. It's sometimes patronising actually goes all the way it's right through to being an insult. <laughs> all right, and him saying that Highland Cup weekend showed us that, particularly Northampton's win against Leinster, that maybe rugby is one sport above all others that can produce such a dramatic shift in performance from one week to another. I mean, you don't really see say the Champions League, mm. you'd rarely see a team, two reasonably even teams, playing two matches where one of them loses 6-0 at home, which would have been the equivalent of the yeah. at least five, probably six, 6-0 at home, and then come back and win quite comfortably the following week away from home. Mm. I don't know if it's just something that in rugby there's one tactical switch that gets made that one coach d- doesn't see coming, whether it's more about the there's so much of it is based on how physical you are. Mm. Uh, well, I get the impression the Man City-Barcelona last 16 game in the Champions League might come pretty close. Uh, City hammer Barcelona 5-0 at home and then lose 6-0 in the new Camp. Given City, the way City's season has been going, I think that's... See, that- you're hypothetically looking into a match in the future that may, that may argue against my point, which yeah. I think probably proves. I think it's that small differences in rugby are often amplified into a bigger... Like the physicality on the scoreline, yeah, the small yeah. difference between the team. I mean, you know, you can have it is. I've never seen a situation in rugby where, to compare to the quite common one in football, where one team is far better and still just can't score. 
and it's and it finishes nil nil. Or sometimes the team that but why has one it? attempt on target. I mean, Chelsea against Bayern. But really. how can it be that one team is far better? In, for example, in the Leinster Northampton, and particularly given that we're, the home advantage went against both teams, it didn't turn out to be an advantage. How, how is it that one team is so much better the first week and another team the next week fixes all those problems and actually starts inflicting their own game in the opposition? No two games are alike, huh? That's that the wonder true. of sport. And we're going to talk to US Murph about one of the most famous episodes in the Michael Jordan story, the flu game in the 1997 NBA Finals when he... Was pretty sick, Murph, but uh, didn't matter. He plays with amazing stuff. This is in the news at the moment because the runners that uh, that he wore that night have been sold at auction for quite a lot of money. $104,000 for, for a pair of very stinky runners. This is said to sum up a lot of the greatness of Jordan. Although some people say that was he really as sick as he looked as he was almost falling around the court? Or was he just hamming it up for a little, just that little bit of extra? For people like us, Murph, to talk about it mm. a number of years later and praise him for playing Listen, through I'm it. I'm sick, right? But at the same time, it couldn't hurt for me to really ram home. You know, just the narrative is, you know, let's just simplify the narrative down to its most basic point. Extremely near death yet still brilliant basketball player. Eddie O'Sullivan is ready to go, as is Emmett Burney joins us in studio. Emmett, thanks very much for popping in. No problem. Can I just start by asking, it's something we've been talking about already, but is, whether you agree or not, is rugby the one sport above all others that you can see these dramatic shifts in performances from one week to the next, and not necessarily just in these um, two-legged kind of affairs, although that's quite a can be a stark example, as in Leinster Northampton. But even you see Ireland against Australia being fairly abysmal, and a week later putting in one of the great Irish performances of all time against New Zealand. Is, is it is it something about rugby where just one small technical detail or one mind, mindset shift? can change things entirely, even more than other sports. I don't think there's any one thing, but uh, there is one dominant factor, and that's the physicality, the nature of the sport. Like, if you take physicality as a whole, it trumps all the other characteristics of what you need to win a rugby game. So, like, if you have, like, skill, conditioning, mental toughness, all that sort of thing, in, all tied in to, say, what's a prerequisite to winning a rugby game. Say, if your uh, physicality trumps all them, if you're not within, say, I'd say 20% of what the other team have. Now, I'll explain that. So, if you've a, if you've a, if you've a team, say... And they're they're like the All Blacks, very very skilled, but they're not anywhere near, say for example, the team as physical as, as South Africa. It doesn't matter what skills they have if they're not within twenty percent of the physicality of that team. That's that they become irrelevant. It'd be say for example having a very skilled ten year old boxing boy, for example, going in against a grown man with no skills. He's not going to win, and that's why the physicality trumps everything and you, that can change very quickly in the space of seven days. Say for example, Ireland against Australia, Ireland against New Zealand in the November internationals. They went in and they just stepped up the level of physicality and then were accurate. They cut out mistakes. That was all. That's the but say in a, war, in a World Cup scenario, Ireland play against Australia in 2011, play really well, just cut everything off from an attacking point of view from Australia, hugely physical. Then a couple of weeks later, they're playing Wales and the same thing happens to Ireland. And I, I, I assume that there's well, no reason for Ireland well, not to be at the right pitch. It becomes a little bit more complicated then because you're playing in a tournament and there's complications. Look at the scrum, for example. Australia had lost their key front row players. Ireland dominated, took the Australian back row out of the game, took the back line out of the game, what makes them effective. Against this, uh, Wales, I thought Adam Jones did a good job in, 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 that, in the game against Ireland. Plus, they, they negated guys like Sean O'Brien and then they were very physical in, in, their, def- in their overall defence and attack in the, in the 10 channel. And that was the, that was the probably where they got the game as it wore on and that that told it was quite a close game up to say for example just after half time and then they got a crucial try uh, Phillips got it down the you know he slipped down the blind side got a try and then that was the end of it but those key areas where they were dominant and that told at the end Eddie what do you think is there are these shifts generally down to 
something physical as Emma suggests to getting to that kind of pitch or is it usually just one big technical detail that one coach sees and the other one doesn't until it's too late? Well, technical as a partner, but I'd agree with Emmett that it's not usually the main factor. The main factor is usually down to physicality and it's 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 all it's not just the physicality itself, it's the mental attitude that goes with it. And you have to remember as well in, in a, a game like rugby it's a team sport, so there's a there's a collective involved as well. Um, if you take a situation where, you know, a, a team has a bad day out uh, like Northampton had in Franklin's Gardens and they get bullied all over the field, um, you know, there's a kind of a malaise can spread through the team because one or two guys, you know, are not delivering physically and, and suddenly the team starts to, to get panicky and that, that, that malaise spreads to the team. And basically the other team then looks better than they actually are and the team that are getting pushed around looks worse. But it usually comes down to that physical confrontation. And then, you know, you see the mirror image of, of Leicester arriving, um, you know, last weekend in, in, in Aviva Stadium and they basically strangled the life out of, out of, uh, out of Leinster. Um, and it was really down to physicality. It was very interesting watching the Northampton team warming up. Um, you could tell, you know, you could tell from their selection that they hadn't too many options in the backs, but you could tell watching the warm-up um, that they were basically going to go to war with Leinster. I was talking to Simon Manoa for a few minutes after, and we were laughing about that. He was saying that their whole focus was that, you know, it was all about, because uh, I said to him, we could see in your warm-up where you were going, and he said, yeah, we were really going to go after Leinster. Um, physically because we felt we had to dominate them up front. So that whole collective was set out and they set out their stall that week. That was their, their collective intention. And I think, you know, Leinster probably had such a good run the previous week. No matter how much they were told that this storm was coming, you know, it was very hard not to underestimate. Leinster always felt they could get on the ball and still outsmart Northampton. But just that pure aggressive um, aggression and intensity kind of strangled Leinster. And, and rugby is like that. You know, we saw it as well in the sports ground um, on the weekend. Now, we have to factor in a lot of the, the Connacht lads weren't probably uh, in the best of health. But we saw a different um, uh, Toulouse team arriving in Galway. Um, they were a team that, you know, kind of got pushed around at home the previous week. They got shut down and there was just a different psyche about them. And rugby has that capacity. It's It's, it's such a physical game that... To bring that sort of physicality, there's a, there's a whole mental dimension to it. You have to cross a threshold in your mind that you're going to play like that. We saw Ireland do that between Australia and New Zealand. Um, and then, of course, it has to be matched with some technical adjustments. But by and large, we don't bring that physicality, that collective uh, mindset and intensity uh, then you won't get that type of performance. And rugby is, is kind of unique like that. I find it amazing, Emmett, they'll say, to take the specific example of Leinster that Eddie cites there, how would Leinster not have known that was coming? And even if they were somewhat shocked in the early minutes, how how did they not adjust as the as the game wore on? They must have known the, that Northampton were going to show up. Yeah, that's a good question. That was actually what I was going to chip in with there. The the when you start a game with the wrong, and this this never changes. Um, when you start, Eddie touched off it there. He said that it, no matter they knew it was coming. Of course, they knew it was coming. But I. Uh, in your mind, you have to kind of gone through it yourself to try and ex- really, really understand it, I suppose. But uh, it's very, very difficult not to believe that you, you can do something after doing having a game like you did against Northampton the previous week and feel that uh, you can raise your game, like, say, for example, Ireland did against New Zealand. It, that doesn't happen. It never, ever happens because there's so much kind of, uh, I suppose, not confidence per se, but it's a, it's a kind of a... It's a 
it's a motivation thing and the motivation has to be there come from something motivation doesn't come from nothing mm-hmm. and if you've trashed your team the week before uh, and then the follow where you know where is that core motivation coming from it takes a very rare specimen like you see at the odd guy boxer who's been on for years and years and years never gets defeated and stuff like this where is he draw, draw, drawing it from you have to draw it from somewhere and there's very very uh, few individuals that have it well the uh, motivation I assume carries over from the disappointment of last season and if Leinster are serious about winning the competition this year I would have thought they would be at the right. You're I do. Right, I do take looking, your point. I'm, I'm sitting here not no, playing you're rugby, and, and you're looking at it from a macro yeah. point of view. This is a, this is within the season, and it's very much micro, and everything changes from week to week, and your emotions change from week to week. You can take a season as a whole, as you say, and it's not over yet for Leinster if you want to look at it in that sense. But from this point of view, your emotions work on a day to day basis, and that's how you're how you're affected. But what I will say is, is that when you approach the game, and let's just pers- let's just say that it's the wrong attitude. Let's use wrong. It's not necessarily wrong, but let's just say that you approach it, and you're not fully 100. percent Focused and and with that physical mindset that Eddie was talking about going into the game, right? Say so you're, you're you can't go back and suddenly halfway through a game tap into that. That never ever Why happens. Not? It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Um, and the other team, as mentioned before, are starting to grow in confidence as well. And they never ever go back to being a little bit nervous either. In other words, so they're a little bit nervous to going. We're just throwing the kitchen sink at this. And if and if Northampton had been shut down in the first twenty minutes and crushed back with answered answered their answered their uh, their questions, they would have gone been put. They would have been sent packing. But what happened was they were getting really good results and value from the physicality they're bringing to the game. Leinster, as a, as a result, were, were were fading in the game, and, and Northampton's confidence was growing, and it never goes back either. Eddie, as a coach, do you ever see the warning signs either in the week or in the lead up to the game? And if so. Is there anything you can do about that? Because a coach, sure, they can correct some technical issues and ideally you should be able to motivate players as well. But if there's something not quite right with the motivation, can you have you at any time noticed that in players and can you do anything about it? Um, you can and you can is the short answer. But yeah, I, I, it's one of the things you're watching for as a coach when you're you know, in a situation where you're going from one game to the next is that there are signs that guys are in the right place mentally um, uh, and the signs that are not in the right place mentally. Sometimes it's it's just the attitude around camp. You know, guys can be you know a bit high coming off a win. We say like, nor, like the win in Northampton, the Leinster guys uh, that Monday morning would have been jumping out their socks. They'd have been on a high. But as the week goes on, that's got to get dumbed down back to the kind of intensity and focus that they had the week before they went to Northampton. And you're watching for signs of that. Um, I remember myself, it sticks out in my mind, isn't it, World Cup in 2011 um, with the US. The first game against the US was uh, against Ireland. And it was a huge game for the US lads. You know, it was a game we were never going to win. But having said that, it was very important to the team that they put in a huge performance because it was the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Um, now, we got that performance. I mean, the, the lads were really, really delighted with it and they got a lot of great feedback from home, you know, from emails and, and, and texts and everything. So they were on a high, but we had to turn on and play Russia uh, literally three days later. And the problem was, guys were on such a high that I felt that they, they might kind of float into the Russian game. And if we lost to Russia, it would have kind of ruined our World Cup because that was a game we targeted to win. So I remember myself talking to them about that um, you know, the first morning back at training, trying to get them back to, and and they, I thought they all got it in the cha- in the team room, and then we went out to the training field, and the a- the atmosphere of training was was too messy, too laissez-faire. There was guys telling jokes and messing, and I remember actually just tearing into them to try and get them back to ground. You know, it was it was almost a contrived 
um, hissy fit on my part just to make sure that they got and and it got him back to ground and we got guys folks again and and we did actually beat Russia but in my mind I know for sure had I not addressed it straight off the bat mm. we would have floated into a Russian game and could have lost the game that game was a one score game particularly with us being fatigued after coming off the Ireland game so there in my own experience yes uh, you you can see it if you're very aware and and you need to reel it in and sometimes even when you do that and you reel it in you know, you think you're brilliant and you haven't because there's this, again, this collective has to be right. Uh, it has to come together. And it's a very, I think it's it's the same in every sport, but but it's much more exposed in rugby because of the physical nature of the game. If you are 10% down in intensity in rugby, it can turn into a 50% drop in performance. And that's the beauty of the game. That's the physicality of the game. And that's why people love rugby. They love watching it. Is that even a small drop in your mental intensity uh, and your physical intensity is a massive drop in your performance, and and it's it's coaches know that and they're always worried about it, and you're always keeping an eye out to see our fellas where they need to be, but you're never a hundred percent sure. Actually, that's the problem until they get on the field. And as Emmett says, when you get out there, if it's not there, it's almost impossible to get it back again. Are Irish rugby players Emmett more susceptible than other countries to this? I know maybe it's just the obviously Irish teams are the ones that we focus on the most, but a lot of the examples we talked about. Are uh, surround Irish teams, be it the international team, or in the case of last weekend, the Leinster side. Uh, are we any more prone to this, maybe, it's than some other countries? It's a fair point. Um, the yeah, sort of fluctuations of yeah, uh, yeah. Well, there is, there is, a, there is a. This is obviously very theoretical in, in, in a, as an answer because it's very hard to measure this sort of thing. You, you can't look for you know the outcomes on the scoreboard, but it's very hard to measure it within game game context. But. Uh, if you look at all the different teams around the world, let's say take Ireland on block as an international team and then look versus, say, other, other sides, we play with a lot of emotion. And then it's, it's the tweaks within that emotion that determine whether you're really, really focused and up for a physical game or not. And that's really part of our game. That's the way we play. We're not a mechanical type of team. We play with uh, passion and emotion. And, and that's one of the core components to, you know, a good Irish performance, if you like, or if you like a Leinster or whatever. And... Um, that in itself is vulnerable to these sort of scenarios. If you're if you're not mentally and physically in tune and your emotions aren't right for the game, um, it can have a profound effect in a weekly basis. I mean, France are the best example of that. I mean, without a doubt, and they're very temperamental by nature. The French people by nature are, you know, they're hot and cold, up and down, in and out type of thing. Whereas Irish people are probably a little bit steadier in, in, as a, as a, as a as a as a race type people, but the. Um, but within the game of rugby, we get worked up as well. And I think uh, we can also be very laid back and we, and somewhere in between. So the key is how do you tap into that kind of, not just pure worked up, but focus worked up kind of uh, <clears throat> of, of an object. Yeah. One of the ingredients as well, yeah. I'm sure Emmett would agree with this, one of the ingredients in getting that incredible intensity uh, is, is a slight fear factor. And if you're going into a game where you think, look, if we get this wrong here, we get a right pounding. Um, that sense of fear of underperforming is a great focus or a great method of focusing the team. And that's why sometimes you can get, you know, like Connacht go down to, 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 to lose and everyone writes them off. They're going to get beaten out the gate. And in the collective, again, they realize, you know, this is actually true. And they just ramp up their intensity uh, to an incredible level. And there's a bit of that with Ireland as well, coming off, you know, a very kind of, kind of passive performance against Australia, knowing that the same passive performance against New Zealand was going to be a horrible day out. So they ramp up their intensity. Um, and of course, every coach wants the team to do that every week, but you can't, the fear factor can't be the, the motivator every week. It's a factor every week, but it can't be the main motivator. 
Um, but there has to be an element of that there because that's just a good trigger mechanism for getting you focused. Yeah, funny enough, Eddie, Gordon Darcy was talking to us about that a couple of weeks ago after the New Zealand game where he said that, I, I kind of put that to him, is it possible to get to this emotional level every time you play, every time Ireland plays? And he said, well, it has to be. New Zealand seem to be able to do it and we, really we've no business wearing Irish jerseys if, if we're not going to be able to get to that. But I don't know, this is, like judging from what the two of you guys are saying, it really isn't. There have to be a certain set of circumstances that force a team almost into getting to that level. Yeah, the, you, you, the, 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 the trigger mechanisms change from game to game, you know, and you have to recognise that sometimes the fear factor plays a bigger part because you're going into a game that if you know if it goes wrong, it's going to go very wrong. So that, that that's a bigger trigger mechanism there. But in other games, you know, a game that you should win, the fear factor can't, can't be a major part. It's about more about focus uh, and doing your job. Uh, and so th- there are different blends, and, and every coach is trying to get that blend right on a week-to-week basis. But it all comes back then to consistency. How do you get that consistent level of performance, which is kind of the gold standard like New Zealand have. They deliver in every game. They mightn't play well for 80 minutes, but over the most 80 minutes they play well, and, and, and every game during the season they play well. So you get this consistency. So how do you deliver that consistency? And again, it's about keeping guys focused uh, so they bring that level of intensity and execution every week. Um, and the team that does that every week, every week is usually the team that is up on top of the pile. But the formula for that every week is slightly different. It depends on who you're playing. The technical uh, and tactical aspects change a little bit. Uh, the challenge from the other team, are they a very physical team? Uh, if, they're not, if they are a very physical team, you've got to meet that head on or you won't be able to sustain it. So there's, there's, a, there's a process there every week that every coach is trying to implement to get the best out of his team. And that the formula is slightly different every week. But the components don't change. You have to uh, execute well. You've got to be physical. You've got to be focused. Uh, you've got to bring a lot of intensity. Uh, so the, the, the mechanisms for getting or ticking those boxes uh, might change a little bit, but those boxes have to be ticked every week or you're in danger of underperforming. All right, we haven't mentioned Munster so far, Emmett. They produced uh, an incredible finish against Perpignan. Again, one of those performances that... I don't know if we need to start cutting Munster a little bit of slack here because they seem to get criticised quite a lot and everybody talks about how Rob Penny's trying to evolve the type of game that they play, but they, they still produce these results. They certainly still seem to have the mental fortitude, if nothing else, to go away to Perpignan to win with the last play of the game speaks speaks pretty highly of them, do you think? Or or do you have to judge them by a higher standard? Do you have to see more signs of an evolved game plan? No, I don't think... Uh I'm not sure any of that applies. I think Munster are, are getting the most out of what they have right now at this moment in time. I mean, the, the, the results, at the end of the day, you're measured on results. The problem is they don't seem just quite convincing yet as a team. And you fear that uh, when they come up against, say, for example, a very focused big side, the Claremont-type side, so to speak. Um, that per- they, Perpignan they are, doesn't count as that anymore. Not really, no. They wouldn't have the same level of... Like, I mean, when, when, when they peak, when Perpignan peak, like they would have at home to a degree, they wouldn't be in the same bracket as, say, the top two or three French sides, I wouldn't have thought... But um, having said that, like Munster um, are, are capable of making it very, very difficult for any one team, and that's what their secret is at the moment. I'm not saying they're, they're, you know, they're not a good team, but they're not a dominant team at the moment, and that's the that's the key. I thought they were more dominant in the years gone past, whereas now they make it very, very difficult for teams to beat them, and you need to be on your on your game to do it. Now they just simply do that by minimising mistakes and being quite direct in how they play the game. It's just, uh, um, and I think you know you have to say there there there's a question mark over whether they're improving under Rob Penny. 
and that's the other uh, component of it. Like, are they evolving as a team? And certainly, results-wise, they are. Actually, from the point of view of skills, and are they are they you know looking forward to the future? It's hard to really say at this moment. Well, the time, players seem to be buying into it. If if new contracts or anything to go by Eddie Dunica Ryan, the latest this week to sign up Conor Murray recently. Paul O'Connell was clearly near the end of his career, but he says he wants to play as long as possible. So they, they must believe in something that's going on there. Well, yeah, they see, the the team themselves seems to be playing with a lot of commitment and passion, which you expect from Munster. You know, and they're, they're, as Emmett says, they're a terribly hard team to beat. And in Tolman Park, they're almost impossible to beat still. So there's that, again, that huge drive that, that comes from, from, the, uh, from within the team. And they are playing for Rob Penny, you know. So he's obviously having a very positive effect on him. The big bugbear is that under Rob Penny, and, and it's probably unfair to him in many ways, is that um, there has been a paradigm shift in how wants to play the game. There is more, a lot more lateral rugby which is not a bad thing in itself. There's different ways of skinning the cat. And uh, Munster have kind of struggled, uh, and this has been a, a talking point for about a year now, uh, at times playing the style of rugby they play. Uh, and everyone sees that when they go back to a more direct form of rugby, they, they actually get more dividends out of it. So that narrative has been hanging around the team for the last year. And, you know, Rob Penny's, I'd say, frustrated to death by that. That's always a popular conversation. Having said that, they're in a much better place than they were this year. Their results are much better. They're at the top of the Pro 12. Um, you know, bar uh, the, the, the blooper up in Edinburgh, they're back on the horse in the Heineken Cup. And where results have gone from, they're in control of the pool. But I suppose the only thing people are saying is, look, they look vulnerable at times. Munster do look vulnerable. And they look more vulnerable than they have in previous years. And there's this expectation that, yeah, they're getting the job done. It isn't pretty. But you're always worried that, you know, they've had a bad day out further down the track, maybe in a Heineken quarter-final, and they could exit the tournament. I mean, the truth of the matter is as well, and you have to give phenomenal credit to him for coming back uh, last week and winning in Perpignan, but that miraculous offload, you know, from Dennis Hurley to Tommy O'Donnell, who then stayed in bounds and fed J.J. Hannon, who still up the full-back and scored. If you took that, those three cameos out of it, like Munster could be out of the Heineken. So it's that final line they're treading at the moment. And... You have to be fair to them and say, look, they are treading the line, but they're getting the job done. But I suppose people are saying, you know, how much longer can you tread that line and, and it's, you fall the wrong side of it? Uh, and that's probably the, 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 the big question about Munster is, you know, can they deliver 80-minute performances consistently coming into the business end of the season? And there is a lot of truth in what Emmett says, that there are a team, you know, if you talk to guys like Alan Quinlan, he's interested talk about the number of, you know, world-class players that have got left left the monster ranks. You know, you know, retirements and injuries mm-hmm. and so forth, and they are in transition for the last few years. But the standard is set so high in monster that we expect them every year to come out and dominate. Um, and they're not dominating, but they're getting the job done. And it's not pretty, but it's still it's still its job is getting is getting done. But it's probably not as pretty as people would like it. But having said that, you have to give them a lot of credit for where they are. But people still are yet to be convinced by them, which is harsh can you consider their strike rate in terms of win-loss? Yeah, and the most important thing probably is not what people, what uh, players or coaches or, or journalists or anything say about a coach and a team. It's whether the players believe in what the coach is doing. In that context, Emmett, is it, do, are results alone enough to give a coach that aura within the dressing room and convince players that he's the right, even if from the outside looking in, the performances aren't always you know, what we might expect? Yeah, I know what you mean by that. It's basically, uh, in other words, 
is uh, is it is it enough? Does there have to be something? Is there an undercurrent there, maybe that it, that uh, that a, that a coach may uh, may not have the full team on his side, so to speak, despite the results? Is that what you That's mean? a much that, better yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Answer that yeah. one. <laughs> I think Eddie's probably better equipped to deal with this one, but uh, it's uh, yeah. No, I think you know that's very much a personality thing as well. And uh, the problem is, there's probably a bit of a hangover from last year. I think this year with the Rob Penny thing, there was a lot of media momentum probably against him in some ways uh, last year that has kind of hasn't fully been answered. So we don't know what's going on in the change room in the, down in Munster. So I'd be I'd be kind of of the ilk looking at the performances that are coming down that he's squeezing the most out of that team and that they are actually playing for them and they are happy where they are within themselves. And that's the most important thing. And if I was to sum up one thing about Munster over the years, they, they fell a little bit off this uh, last year, but they understood what they were trying to do more than any other team. Team, you know, over the course of the ten years that made it, so they knew themselves very well. That's mm-hmm. very important when you're playing rugby. If you're, you have to know yourself well and know what you're trying to do, and if you have that that component, then it's all you can drive yourself from within, and you don't. Need, it doesn't really matter what's going on on the outside. And I mean, the opposite happened. I mean, if you look at say media momentum uh, around Munster over the last ten years, they would have kind of, uh, you know, had they would have done something, and they would have had. It was all very positive, if you like. It was the complete opposite. Now, like they're doing stuff, they're still winning. But now it's kind of there's a bit of a negative uh, kind of uh, lining to to the, to the media slant on how they're performing and what they're doing. And I believe that's just hung over from last year and what the way kind of the perception that was there around Rob Penny, which is starting to turn a little bit. And that's that is based on results. And at the end of the day, results are what matters. It probably helps mm-hmm. that somebody like JJ Hanran gets the winning try. Eddie, it's we're so used to seeing maybe a Ron Nogara drop goal or something like that winning a match. These new these young players have to to start writing their own history here and he's done that I don't know if he's has he done enough to start stepping up as the number 10 there because he's been shifted into centre and he's played a couple of positions is is that the kind of performance or the kind of finish you think that will actually elevate him? Well I, I, I think you've got to be careful like what Hanrahan did on Saturday was, was world class he, he got it like the game was on the line he got a one on one with the full back he stood him up and went around him and scored brilliant try but we know Hanrahan has talent I mean the guy uh, was a, was a standout as well at underage level for Ireland. Um, he was in the running for 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 the um, IRB Player of the Year uh, uh, at under twenty level. So the guy is he's a, he's a class act. The problem for for JJ Hanron is JJ Hanron needs to play a rugby and he needs to play a ten. And the problem at the moment for him is that Ian Keatley is at ten, and that's no disrespect to Keatley. Keatley has held him over that position. So it's the big conundrum for young players when you're trying to break in, is that. You need to get on the field and you need to play. And he's not getting on the field and playing for a sustained period. You know, it would be the same discussion um, again this morning about uh, Ian Madigan if Jimmy Goppert had been picked for the two Northampton games. But Matt O'Connor picked Madigan and uh, Madigan has got his his his, his two games in, in uh, two crucial games in the Huntington Cup. So that puts him in the running to get picked by George by George Schmidt. It's very hard for George Schmidt to pick JJ Hanron based on one sidestep and Perpignan in the last play of the game. We know he's got talent, so it's the, it's the, it's the obvious problem for the young player. And if Hanran doesn't break into the Munster number 10 short very soon, he has to start finding a way to get on the field somewhere. And you would have said the same to Madigan if, if Gopper was keeping him off the Leinster team. And so we know these guys have potential, but to write their own history, they need to be on the field. And it's not just getting the one-off game, you know, uh, uh, pro 12 game or coming off the bench in Heineken. That doesn't get it done. These guys have to play week in, week out. And that's the big conundrum uh, for these young players. Um, and until they are, uh, we can't make a real judgment on them. And neither can Joe Schmidt as to whether they are test material. Okay. 
Lots of fascinating stuff. I have to say, Eddie, thanks so much. Emmett, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Shane Curran with the kick out. The 42 year old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He tucked it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame, and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time the senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 on the physical element being the one thing really that it's not necessarily just a tactical it's usually the reason that the question we posed at the start of the show how can it happen that Leinster go from and Northampton go from one extreme to the other within a week it's almost all down to an attitude thing to getting to the 100% level of physicality and all these Emmett illustrated that with a number of boxing analogies Mm. we know Emmett's a big boxing fan yeah and I I think you know it's I'm sure this, this isn't how Emmett meant it but at the same time, he is not at any stage advocating that an extremely skilled 10-year-old boxer should take on an extremely unskilled but fully grown... <laughs> yeah, that male. was I, I just that an that's... analogy. We have to yeah, be very I mean, clear about that. Yeah, you know, I, you His know, point is proven without even yeah, take, I mean, taking people, that fight people can, on. People can listen to these things and maybe take things mm. more literally perhaps than they were meant. Um, but again, any unskilled boxers out there, don't, you know, don't do that. That's, no matter how skilled that little kid no, is. No, you don't want to do that. Coming up later today... That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I went down Swansfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here? You show me, man. So it turned out that Andre Villas-Boas did get sacked after all. He. Uh, I don't know if you saw his press conference. We can talk a little bit about this. This is the one after the match. And people will say, well, what he says to the press doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because what's, what, what matters is losing 5-0, for instance, to Liverpool. That's the thing that's the part that matters. I think it all matters. I think you could see from, his, uh, from the way that he behaved in public that there were some problems there. And in his very last press conference, he, he blurted out something about, uh, well, uh, I, I don't know if I can make this public, but, um, and then sort of, and you're thinking, oh, this, I can't remember seeing a manager who was not going to get sacked. He was asked, is this your team? Is this, are these your signings? Yeah. The answer to that is, of course. Yeah. And we're all unified. The club is delighted to have these amazing players on board and they will all come good. Yeah. Rather than, ooh, I don't know if I should be saying this. Oh, well... The guys not, are going well, I mean, yeah, I signed those. But those other guys that are sticking it up, ooh, nothing to do with me. Well, there's a lot of... Uh, Mr. Paolo B. Or no, that's, that's too obscure. How about Mr. P. Baldini? <laughs> uh, yeah. F. Baldini. F. Baldini, yes, of course, sorry. Franco. Not Paolo. But anyway, we're also, gonna, B. we're also going <laughs> to talk to Mr. G. Hunter... Uh, that's Graham Hunter. Yeah, good. Yeah, about his uh, his new book on La Roca. Well, no, it's not called La Roca. That's uh, that's a book by Jimmy Burns, isn't it? Oh yeah. Um, no, this is called Spain, and it's a. You, you remember that a couple of years ago, Graham wrote a book about Barcelona, yeah. the making of the world's greatest team, and well, I'd say. This one here, Graham was looking enough, I guess, to be 
um, UEFA and FIFA's man with the Spanish camp uh, throughout all their their three tournament triumphs. So uh, this is a book about uh, about that. Great, that's all coming up later on. Murph is just about ready, I think. Probably Thursday, you know, later on this weekend, we'll turn around some festive P. Bezos. So mm-hmm. continue to get them. And he looks very excited about what he's received so far. Secondcaptains at irishtimes.com is the email. Kevin address. Peterson has... I'm just giving a little taster of Great. What, what we've gotten. Kevin Peterson does feature. Mr. Peterson. Mm-hmm. Time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, how are you? Are you all set for Christmas? Oh, I'm staring at the tree right now, boys, enjoying a little time off, uh, setting up the lights around the house, which, you know, for a, uh, a technophobe like me is a, is a joke. It's hard for me, to, it's hard for me to, to put a plug into a socket, but I'm able to pull it off, and the Murphy house looks festive, boys. It looks festive. We noticed, uh, noted, I should say, a story this week, Brian, that's, uh, that's hardly the biggest story in American sport at the moment, but it did bring us back to an interesting person and an interesting topic. Now, the story was that Michael Jordan, uh, at auction, I think it was at auction, was yeah, it? Yeah, at auction, yeah. Uh, a pair of his basketball sneakers from a very famous game that he played in 1997 against the Utah Jazz, an NBA Finals game, sold for $104,000 for a pair of smelly basketball shoes. Brian, why, why did these shoes uh, end up so many years later costing so much money? It's funny what always catches your guys' eyes over there. You know, everybody's like, uh, NFL playoffs, you guys are like, what about these smelly shoes, man? <laughs> it's, uh, it's good, but you're right. It, is a, it did achieve a, a degree of news level over here in the States because, of course, Michael Jordan, anything to do with Michael Jordan always hits the news in some way, somehow, even though he hasn't played basketball in over 10 years now, I think. But, uh, yeah, well, there's a couple of things going on here, guys. There's one of, first of all, just, those shoes were associated with one of the greatest basketball games, really some would say one of the greatest performances, or some would argue, in, in the history of NBA Finals, and that was Michael Jordan's quote-unquote flu game. And that was the game where we found out later that Michael Jordan essentially was on death's door before he went out and scored a dramatic 38 points, including a game-winning three-pointer to beat the Utah Jazz in the critical Game 5 of the 1997 NBA Finals. Now, we can get into all the details of that performance, but the other part is it has to do with this whole crazed uh, you know, sort of phenomenon of the last several years of sports memorabilia going for crazy prices. Yeah, you guys, who would want a pair of shoes yeah, what in is their this house? All, what is this all about, shoes. Brian? What's I mean, that? What is this all about, the kind of sports memorabilia fetish or whatever you want to call it in American sports? Yeah, well, I don't know how it plays over there for you guys. You guys are going to have to tell me how it is over there in Ireland and in Europe in general. But, yeah, there is a huge market for sports memorabilia, and it's game-used or game-worn stuff or stuff that famous people have touched or used or looked at at some point in their lives. And, you know, these Jordan shoes were given to a ball boy. Strangely, that Jordan gave those shoes to a ball boy. You know, there's this kind of another tradition over here in the States, and I probably maybe in European football too, I don't know, but 
you know, the, the kids who work in the clubhouse tend to get incredible brushes with greatness. And these are kids who work for generally no money, peanuts. They're doing it because it's an incredible thing to work in the locker room or the clubhouse of an NFL team or an NBA team or a Major League Baseball team and be up against these guys. And they tend to be some of the most trusted advisors of these great stars. And these great stars tend to kind of trust these kids who work in the clubhouse more than they do the media or the coaches, you know, who are, can be seen as an enemy at some point. But they always seem to trust these kids and Jordan gave those shoes to a kid who worked the Utah locker room. The kid kept them for 16 years and then put them up for auction. And like he said, guys, got 100000 But it does raise the larger question of who, who wants these things. Who, how important is it in your life to have something that Babe Ruth touched, that Lou Gehrig wore, that Muhammad Ali uh, wore? Um, this is an item, too, guys, that was touched on comically by the great uh, Seinfeld show here in America that was such a huge hit. If you guys recall, I believe there was an episode where Jay, Peterson, uh, Jay Peterman pardon me, uh, deputized Elaine to go bid on a set of golf clubs once used by John F. Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She got into a bidding war with Sue Ellen Mischke, the, baby, the brawless Baby Ruth heiress, remember yeah, that? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Not wanting to lose, she wound up spending $10,000 more than she was supposed to, which is, of course, a whole other. Leave it to Seinfeld to, uh, to, to remind us of the comedy of it all. But, guys, there are some crazy prices that have gone down in the history did you know Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball, which before we found out was entirely fueled by chemical labs and steroids, went for $3 million? $3 million for his 70th home run ball. Uh, a Babe Ruth bat, I think, has gone for upwards of a $1 million. I don't know. You guys into that stuff? Uh, the only time it ever makes any kind of headlines is when... Uh, a guy who's fallen on hard times and he decides to sell his medals. Oh, you always say that yeah. like the England 1966 World Cup team uh, yeah. it pops up from time to time and had to sell their medals. It's not seen as such a joyous thing, I don't no, think. No, it's, it's, like, it's really like, okay, he's, he's kind of hit, hit the skids a little here. He's gone, he's really hit hard times. And as a result, oftentimes they're, like, their old team would buy it for their club museum or something like that. But as a sort of money-making venture for the, for the person who has that or a money-making venture... Or, a, you know, sort of an investment to be sold again. No, it's not really a thing over Brian, here Brian, you said it's the flu game, so that gives us a, an indication as to why it's become famous. He wasn't feeling particularly well going into this one. How, how bad was he feeling, do we know? And how spectacular was his success, which he ended up having that night? That's one of those great questions, like, um, to, to circle back to John F. Kennedy for the second time in, in, one, uh, in one session here, that, you know, there's many theories that what really happened on November 22, 1963, in a very serious dramatic way. Nobody really knows, did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone or whatever? Well, there are other things in the sports world, sports conspiracies, you know, what really happened in this sports story. And we don't know what really happened to Michael Jordan in his hotel room in Utah. We were told that he had the flu or perhaps food poisoning, uh, and that it weakened him so severely that almost everybody associated with the Chicago Bulls said there's no way he can play in this game, critical game five. I mean, you know, you always remember Jordan as a champion, but at this point in time, he was not the champ of the 1997 NBA Finals. It was 2-2 with the Utah Jazz. If they lose game five, they're in big, bad shape. And maybe the Utah Jazz and Carl Malone and John Stockton, who never won an NBA title, maybe they get the title if they win game five. So what really happened to Jordan? There are theories abound. Um, some people think there's a dark theory that somebody might have poisoned his room service food. I mean, holy cow, that's pretty dramatic, right? Uh, there's another theory that perhaps Jordan was hamming it up a little bit. You know, it's funny, Tiger Woods 
was always viewed as he took all his cues from Michael Jordan. He wanted to be, you know, he grew up in the early 90s and the mid-90s was when Tiger was at his most impressionable. And he always, he even said it as a youngster, I want to be the Michael Jordan of golf. Well, Tiger kind of has that same thing where he's had several dramatic performances where he's limping or where he was sick at the Bay Hill at Arnold Palmer and, and, and leaning down and getting on all four knees. If you watch Tiger's career closely, he'll have many, many moments where he hams up an injury, and many people think he was taking his cues from Michael Jordan, who used to sort of create in his mind his own adversity to make himself kind of push himself that much further or be that much more of a diva or be that much more dramatic. Now, I could be saying this, for all I know, Michael Jordan truly was poisoned and truly had lost uh, a number of pounds and was pale and dehydrated and, and couldn't walk and all that stuff. So we don't really know how sick he was. Was he food poisoned? Was he hamming it up? Was he just kind of maybe dr- over-dramatizing it to, uh, to kind of make himself look that much more better? But the bottom line is... The guy performed incredibly at the most important time, and that was the fourth quarter of the game, which was a close game, I believe, tied late into the game. In fact, it was actually tied 85-85 when Jordan, who supposedly should have been at the end of his rope with the final, uh, final minute of the game, I think about 30 seconds to go, and he hits a dramatic three-pointer. I believe it's John Stockton who's closing out on him. It um, might have been Jeff Hornacek, I don't know, but he hits the three-pointer. That really, It's not the last bucket of the game, but it winds up being his 38th point of the game. It's enough for them to hold off Utah, even though Utah scored another bucket late, and it took another Luke Longley dunk to kind of put it away. But the point is, is that he, you know, he, he delivered this incredible performance, this 38-point Game 5 winning performance, while guys, uh, according to some, on uh, a, an illness that would, have, that would have had you or me in bed for a week. Brian Jalen Rose, a former NBA player now in ESPN Pundit, added another one to that list of, of the possible ailments that Michael Jordan was suffering from that night. He said he was hung over. Would Michael Jordan have been out for a few jars the night before a big game? Oh, my gosh. Well, I certainly, I don't know about jars so much as we do know that he used to go late night into gambling. Do you remember? I forget what year it was, but one year he was spotted in between games in Vegas gambling. Remember? It was like, holy cow, what is Jordan doing? He, and we've later found out that he was a really heavy gambler and, and probably still is to this day a gambling addict to some kind, which leads to another dark theory that I hesitate to even bring up, but some people speculate that his, A, his absence from the NBA was not because he wanted to go play baseball in the middle of his career, but was because of a gambling uh, suspension issued by David Stern of the NBA that will never be uncovered. That was the ultimate cover-up, but he banned him from the game for gambling. The very, very dark theory also that his father's murder, terribly sad and tragic story of his father, being murdered while he slept in his car at a rest stop, some people think was related to Michael Jordan's gambling debts. Again, crazed theories like Lee Harvey Oswald, like the flu game, all these things that, you know, there are people in this world who traffic in conspiracy theories for everything. I don't know. I tend not to be, I tend to kind of believe that the world is a little bit more mundane than the conspiracy theorists believe. But was it, could he have been hungover? Boy, that would have been a hell of a hangover, guys, to have lasted two days because... Supposedly, he called the jazz uh, or the team doctors to his room the night before. So he had been in bed 24 hours even after calling the doctors. I mean, maybe Jalen Rose is right. I mean, again, let's put it this way. I wouldn't think it was likely that he was that hungover because the game's at night. You can, all of us who have gone out for a few jars could, you know, a little Gatorade, maybe a cheeseburger, you're ready to go by evening, right? So I can't imagine a hangover was that devastating yeah. for the well, guy. But I've I'll put never it on the had, probability list at about 5%. I've never that? had Gatorade, I must say, on a, no. 
No. And in fairness, Brian, you're the guy who has to present a morning show starting at uh, five o'clock in the morning. So you going in with a hangover probably more serious than most people uh, having to start maybe a little later than that. Where does it rank, Brian? I wouldn't say I've done a hangover show, but I would say I've done shows where we went out to a couple of concerts the night before and come in on seriously sleep deprived (laughs) and and scratchy throated. But like Jordan guys, I kind of did the equivalent of a 38 point game five winning performance, right? (laughs) Brian, you've explained it already well. I'm just wondering of iconic Michael Jordan moments we, we've seen certainly it's produced some valuable uh, sporting memorabilia here weighing in at over $100,000 in iconic Michael Jordan moments or or games buzzer beater shots is this generally considered up there top 5 top 10 yeah uh, well, I would say top 2 or really? 3 I mean really only the one uh, again against the Jazz the shot over Byron Russell and then maybe his game winning shot as a freshman at North Carolina to win the national championship but yeah the flu game I think maybe honestly, if you had to, if you had to, sort of detail Jordan's dramatics, it would be top two or three, if not top one. All right, we'll leave it at that, Brian. We do would I would also like to wish you a happy Christmas as well. Mm. So yeah, well, we were we were going to ask you who did uh, did you think uh, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, given your four mentions of JFK today? But it's not all that festive. We'll so just maybe leave it with a happy Christmas. Yeah, maybe we should just Brian wish you a very happy Christmas and thanks. I think it was on my mind because we just did the fiftieth anniversary. A lot yeah. of heavy yeah. stuff over here in the states, but uh, but yeah, much more festive things. We got the Forty ers looking like they're playoff bound. Boys, guess what? I'll leave you with this. As I go to put more lights on the Murphy family Christmas house, uh, I am attending the final game at Candlestick Park on Monday the 23rd. Uh, Look for the guy who's sobbing in his (laughs) Joe Montana jersey uh, somewhere in the crowd, and that'll be me, boys, because we're going to close the old barn down. And I know we talked about it uh, earlier on the show, but just letting you guys know, we're closing her out in style. And your boy will be there. Brian, thanks for everything this year. And one tip, you can never have too much tinsel in a house at Christmas time. Tinsel <laughs> equals class. So just... I'm going to go get some more right now based on that recommendation alone. The more I think about this, the more I feel that this ball boy yes. has let it, an opportunity go. You might think that getting something for free and selling it on for $104,000... It's not bad. It's probably making the most of an yeah, opportunity. It's not bad, yeah. But he should have played the long gamer. If we all know this, as I remember as an eight-year-old in the... Yeah. Millennium year. Do you remember the Millennium 50Ps? Yeah. And you, and people you were no more eight years old, by the way. 1988? Oh, the Dublin, D- Dublin Millennium. Millennium yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Only sorry. Only a true salt of the earth dub, like, like old McDevitt would presume that the Millennium well, year is 1988. Well, that's what I said as well. 988, 1988. Yeah, there were these Millennium 50Ps on the go at the time. And I do remember, I don't know if this was one of those just things that your parents tell you that aren't true yeah. or whether kids just decided it. but there was this big thing at the time don't spend these 50p's save them and in in a, in a year in the future like 2011 mm. these will be worth 50,000 euro well mm. p- p- puns at the time yeah. I don't think we were sure the euro was going to come through in 1988 yeah but uh, I don't think I kept any of those 50p's if I spent them no. on hula hoops well you would have got quite a few bags of hula hoops still on the other two on the other with hand. 5p left over yeah that's the, the irony isn't it yeah Sure, you would have been able to sell the coin for a lot more money than the coin was nominally worth, but the goods and services you could exchange for the new amount of money would still be less than you could have bought with 50p <laughs> in 1988. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, think, I think you did okay there, uh, on to be honest. Don't, don't beat yourself up. Are you a memorabilia collector, an autograph hunter? Uh, no, the last autograph I remember getting off anyone was um, in the Bridge Bar in Tume when I asked Gay McManus. He was like one of my dad's best friend <laughs> who was a Milton's best player and a player for Galway and uh, he asked I asked him for his autograph and he didn't 
obviously have anything to sign. Mm. So I got a matchbox mm. and opened out the matchbox mm. and he signed ah. the matchbox. The only autograph I ever got was from uh, Packy Bonner in that great millennium year of 1988. Oh, what a yeah. year. He was at the Ivy, uh, Ivy Grounds in Crumlin, you know? Yeah. At like the Guinness Open Day. And I remember uh, being part of this scrum that was all surrounding Packy Bonner. He was sitting behind this sort of desk, like in a school, like a school classroom desk. Yeah. Um, actually really irritable. <laughs> I'll sign them all. I'll sign them all. Uh, <laughs> as people, you know, stretched out this stuff towards him. And he was yeah. just t- trying to tell people to calm down, you know, uh, which he did. Nice signature, actually, Packy Bonner. I had him on my wall there for a couple of years. But it was the first autograph I ever got and the last because I, I remember looking at it and thinking, why do I even have this? Mm. Could you be know? anyone. You know? I, like, Packy Bonner has a, has a cool signature. But why do I Maybe even have be worth this 50, piece of rubbish? Maybe I don't, want, I don't even know. want it. Mm. I have it because the only reason I got it was because loads of people were going to do it. And I just joined in mindlessly with this surge of people. Was that the moment in your life when you said, I'm not going to follow the crowd anymore? Well, I, I'm well, going to let certainly, this hair grow. I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to collect another piece of memorabilia because... It doesn't bring me happiness. I do remember, and Ken, this was quite possibly in that great millennium year of 1988 also. Yeah. I remember being in school, and there was great excitement. Everyone said, Brian Robson is coming down to Salorgan Shopping Centre. Oh, yeah. That's, he's, he's signing, was it New Balance or something? I don't know, whatever his, his yeah. bag was at that time. Oh, could have been, actually, yeah. Went down, queued up for hours for no particular reason, just to get a signature. I think he I think he actually asked what would you like me to sign? I didn't have anything. You're supposed to, people were bringing oh. boots and bits and bobs. Oh, you, so he you, just signed you, some an object as opposed to what do you want me to write? Yeah, exactly. What I don't do know. I was, I was very shy. Packy Bonner wrote best wishes. Can't be honest, I don't even know if I brought that autograph home. It was the same. It was, autographs just never quite best wishes quite different. I did mention at the start of the show that the we're right in the middle of awards season and the Irish Times Sports Council Sportswoman of the Year awards take place this Friday. We're going to tie in a special show with those awards which we're very excited about. We've a couple of huge interviews lined up which will have a massive relevance I hope to women in sport both in Ireland and further afield. That means that the usual show on Thursday is now going to go out on Friday instead to tie in with that. The football show will as always be out on Thursday. So you'll get both of your programs just a slight rejigging of times there. Hope you enjoyed today's programme. In the meantime, Second Captain's Football coming out at six o'clock this evening. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.